Strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Rings trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. We now have but one choice. We must face the long dark of Moria. Be on your guard. There are older and fouler things than orcs in the deep places of the world. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is A Journey in the Dark, where our fellowship braves the minds of Moria, for they have no other choice. This is our 13th episode on The Fellowship of the Ring from 2001. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. As we begin the cold, dark dive into the kingdom of the dwarves, it seems a prime opportunity to start digging, greedily and deeply of course, into dwarf culture broadly. Something we've not really had much opportunity to get into yet, and doesn't come up that often in the upcoming two films either. Moria really is the best spot for this. Today we're going to focus on the dwarves as a race in Middle-earth. Next week, we plan to do our deep dive into Gimli, son of Glowin, which will allow us to zoom in on Thorin's folk in his family history and those that directly preceded our fellowship dwarf. Starting with names, the dwarves in their own tongue are called the Khazad, which you may recognize from the name of Khazad-dûm, which we are about to venture into in our main narrative. They are also known as the Hadadrim in Sindarin and Kasari in Quenya. Less fortunately, they were also referred to as the Nogrim or Nogothrim, the stunted people. They're also occasionally called the Gonherim, um, from the syndrome Gond meaning stone, and Hir meaning lord, um, so it literally means they're masters of stone. Um, and you don't really hear this much in any of the books, really, but I bring it up because of its similarity to Gondor, um, and to point out that Gondor is the land of stone. Going into dwarven history, they were created by Aule or Mahal, the maker, which we'll just get into a little more in the Tolkien Tolkien book section. Some of their first settlements are in the Blue Mountains, uh, the Arid Lewin, um, and importantly, they are Belagost and Nogrod. Um, and for a variety of reasons, um, they're significant to the kind of prehistory of the Lord of the Rings. But for um, for our purposes, they are best known for being ruled by Azagal, um, and he was a Dwaro king who joined the Union of Mithras, uh, which was a kind of short-lived alliance of the High Elves, the Dwarves, and the Men, um, actually including the Easterlings, which is really important, um, that assailed Angband, which is Morgoth's and Sauron's fortress. Um, the Union of Mithras, um, as most things in the Silmarillion, did not end well, um, but it does kind of help us to get a sense for this kind of uh, precursor alliance of the Dwarves and Elves um, and show that, you know, before they got kind of crotchety with one another, they did have something of a relationship. Another one of the Dwarvish early settlements is in the Misty Mountains, where we are now, and what would become Casa Doom. Moria itself is insanely old. When Durin's bane is awoken, Moria has existed for 8,400 years, 
predating by two centuries the arrival of the Noldor, the first elves to return to Middle-earth. It's the oldest civilization by far in Middle-earth. And right around here, I came across Glarong the Dragon. I know nothing about this, so I want Emily to tell me what this is about. <laughs> so uh, so uh, Glarong is the first of uh, the dragon kind in Middle-earth, um, and is obviously because all dragons are evil, as we well know, um, allied with uh, Morgoth and Sauron. Um, and during the Union of Mithras, uh, the dwarves uh, were basically not having a great go of it. To be fair, nobody was really having a great go of it. Um, but uh, Glarong comes... Uh, running out of his uh, dwelling to kick dwarven ass. Um, and he does manage to kill Azagal, the legendary king. Um, but the dwarves in return, kind of tit for tat style, manage to like carve up his belly. Um, he, they don't kill him. He does have to retreat, though, which is significant enough for the battle that they're in. Um, but it is, again, yeah, another one of these kind of precursor relationships that shows that the dwarves and dragons um, are in a uh, millennia-long pissing contest. Um, so by the time you get to Smaug, who is one of the lesser dragons uh, of Middle-earth um, in The Hobbit, um, there is a lot of history between these these folks. And this is about the point in reading up on Dwarvish history where my eyes start to glaze over. Uh, is there anything we want to say before we hop over to Durin's folk, Emily? <laughs> um, there is some, um, and I, I, I will say that um, I also broadly don't really give a shit about the Doro history. I, I find it not boring, just not as compelling. Um, but one of the kind of undercurrents i think of a lot of the conversation that we're gonna have today that um we are not hitting on in this episode but we will be hitting on in next week's episode is the uh real context as in the the context in, in our world um for the dwarves and the creation of the dwarves and what historically is going on to compel tolkien to make the dwarves as they are um and um, for those of you who are kind of familiar with like the meta conversation around the dwarves, you will probably well know that they are very, very closely associated with like anti-Semitic tropes. Um, and all I would like to say here is that we are not alighting that because we're scared of talking about it. Um, we are alighting it because we're dedicating a decent chunk of the next episode to talking about that and to dealing with it. So if, as we go through uh, this history, you start to pick out a whole bunch of things that sound wildly anti-Semitic, you are, of course, correct to pick these things out. And we are not ignoring it. We, we will come back to it, I promise. And always feel free to call us out if we're alighting any subject like that, because we are trying to give The Lord of the Rings, books and film, a very thoughtful look with our perspective, and we don't want to miss out on anything like that. And I love getting to call Tolkien a dumb bitch, so. <laughs> yeah, give Emily more opportunities to do so. <laughs> Speaking of dumb bitches, let's talk about Durin. <laughs> uh, okay, that, was, that isn't a great segue, but... Doran was one of the seven dwarf lords to originally awake in Mount Gundabad. He led his people to Khazad-dûm, and his people were the most prolific throughout the Second and Third Ages. Thorin Oakenshield, for example, is of Doran's folk, as is Gimli. In Moria, they would awake the Balrog in 1980 of the Third Age, and then perhaps the other biggest, you know, historical note for Durin's folk, especially uh, Thorin's uh, family and company, is uh, the arrival of Smog at the Lonely Mountain, which we'll probably discuss a little more in depth in our next episode. God help us. 
Getting into dwarfish design and culture, noting all the caveats that Emily gave just a couple minutes ago, they are generally depicted as short and slightly, like slightly taller than hobbits, but you know, definitely shorter than elves and men. They are stocky and they are broad, with long beards that are often forked and braided. Uh, I don't know much about the Duero women, so I'm going to hand this one over to Emily. Yeah, so this is kind of one of these eternal debates, and uh, you know, for for fans of uh, Tolkien's works, um, which is this question of what do uh, dwarf women look like? Um, and and for a long time, the answer was kind of. Um, uh, well, the answer was pretty much whatever you want them to look like. And um, with the release um, of The Nature of Middle-Earth, which was a book in the History of Middle-Earth series that came out on, I think, September 1st of last year, um, Tolkien, uh, you, you know, posthumously plants his uh, flag in the soil of they don't have beards, um, which is bullshit, and we should all ignore it because that is just a horrible aesthetic choice. Um, in the films, they take the much better position of the Dwarrow women have beards and are virtually indistinguishable from the men, um, and I think that is a brilliant choice, and I think that is really fascinating, and I think that is like a really cool like deconstruction of things that are traditionally gendered, yada, yada, yada. Um, all of this to say, um, we don't actually see um, very many dwarf women at all. Um, I think I can count on one hand the number that are actually named. Um, and just sitting here right now, the only one that I can actually think of is Dees. Um, and I, I feel like if that doesn't indicate to you how uh, little presence they have in this series, then then nothing will. Um, but um, I, I think... Um, you know, I am personally um, strongly endorsing uh, the uh, dwarf women have beards take. Um, and I think you should too. <laughs> I'm sitting here tweeting, hire more dwarf women and putting the <laughs> clapping emoji in between them. <laughs> Dwarves generally have a lifespan upwards of 250 years and are depicted as physically strong while being resistant to extreme temperatures, which makes them ideal for their mining and cavernous living situation. They are considered skilled craftsmen and miners. Uh, for example, they created Narsil, the sword that would break in uh, dethroning Sauron, at least for some time. And they also proved to be resistant to the One Ring and the general ensorcelment surrounding the Great Rings, though it did inspire in them a prone for gold lust, which, you know, we'll, we'll get into that one next episode. Yeah, um, and I think one of the the kind of key elements um, uh, as this kind of this resistance relates to our story is that um, it makes um, Gimli's decision to straight up smack uh, the ring with his axe um, way more of a flex um, because not only is he not at all tempted by the ring, he's able to try and destroy it, which none of the elves uh, sitting around can. So, haha, Legolas owned. The dwarves are also very famous for their architecture, which they have left all over Middle-earth. Uh, most famously, they built halls under mountains. We see quite a few of them over the course of the six movies adapting Middle-earth. Um, we see the kingdom in the Lonely Mountain, or Erebor. Um, we see Moria uh, in this film. And then also we've talked about Belagost and Nograd. And then also they uh, supposedly built the Alvin King's Hall uh, or Thandril's Hall, uh, which we do see in the Hobbit films. But it is kind of pictured as more of an underground cavernous kind of dwelling than, say, Rivendell or Lothlorien, the other elvish homes that we see during these movies. 
They also built the gates of Minas Tirith, and they would be responsible for, for rebuilding the Hornburg, um, or Helm's Deep, as you may know it, following the War of the Ring. That is actually really significant because in the books, Gimli finds, well, not Gimli, it is known that there are these caves called the Glittering Caves um, hidden behind the Hornburg. Um, and in thanks for, um, well, not just for Gimli's role in the Fellowship, but also for um, the dwarves' help in rebuilding, to be honest, a, a huge amount of the Manish kingdoms. Um, Eomer, um, Edig, uh, King Eomer of Rohan, um, gives Gimli. Uh, the title Lord of the Glittering Caves, um, and he later establishes a colony of dwarves there and within the kind of realm of Rohan, which I think is like a nice kind of uh, insight into the the post-war coalition building that occurs. And lastly, the languages of the dwarves, uh, primarily Kuzdul, which we discussed last time. So go back to episode 13, The Ringo South. Gandalf unlocks the riddle, we're treated to some more great foley work, and Durin's enormous doors swing open. Gimli, revealing far more about Dwarrow culture than maybe he should, doesn't seem to blink at all at the darkness within. So far as he's concerned, we're all about to be treated to the legendary hospitality of the dwarves. Given that they're playing up Gimli's newfound Scottishness, seeing him wax lyrical about roasting fires, malt beers, and stewed meat while wandering about in the suffocating dark and cold makes me feel suddenly very self-conscious about all the times I've pitched the place where I live. If Scotland is Moria, does that make Thatcher the Balrog? Much to consider. Much to consider. Cue one of my favorite lines in the series. Join us in the fight and victory will be <laughs> Hang on, hang on. Wrong mine. Let's try that again. And they call it a mine. A mine! This is no mine. It's a tomb. Next, we get some spooky, scary skelly reveals, and Boromir once again advocating for going via the Gap of Rohan, and Elijah Wood does what he well and truly does best, dropping to the ground in style. It's time to fight the Kraken, and check out Sam getting the two first two hits in. Then we run our very first raid of the film, Merry and Pippin try to play healers, Aragorn goes for melee DPS, Legolas for ranged, and Boromir, of course, tanks. See guys, I really am a gamer, I swear. <laughs> the Kraken soundly defeated, the Fellowship run to the comparable safety of Moria while the doors collapse behind them. Everything is now very dark, save for the light cast by Gandalf's staff. But lo, we can still see the actors' faces. Cinema magic! And it is a good thing, too, because it's a four-day journey to the other side. I can't imagine how much money would be wasted on making those guys act entirely in the dark. Zoom out on Moria, immense, dark, insidious, and despite its claustrophobic aura, seemingly infinite. 
Somewhere in the distance, you can hear Elon Musk calling Gandalf a nonce and insisting he could build a submarine that could get the Fellowship to the other side in just two days. <laughs> the Fellowship promptly gets lost. Big talk, Gandalf. Big talk. This, and then they stop for a chat. Peep Aragorn and Boromir having a boys chat in the corner, while Frodo and Gandalf do some existential reminiscing of their own. That done, Gandalf discovers the way. How? Because the air smells fresher? Who needs maps, I guess? There's some more wandering in the dark, some more establishing shots, and then we are treated to some gorgeous sweeping shots of Moria's monumental architecture. Behold, the great realm dwarf city of Dwarodelf. But what would this story be without a little family trauma? Gimli discovers the tomb of his cousin Balin, and, overwrought with emotion, makes a break for it. A single shaft of light illuminates it, casting an unholy pallor on Gimli's face as he begins to weep. Note as well that it is Boromir who hauls ass to comfort Gimli, while Legolas and Aragorn state the obvious, they cannot tarry here. Gandalf delivers some excellent narration, reading from the Book of Mazarbul, to recount the horrifying story of the loss of Moria. They have taken the bridge. And the second hall. We have barred the gates. And then that's the end of the scene. Nothing else happens. Nothing at all. yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. It wasn't much of a choice for the Fellowship to enter Moria. The Watcher in the Water forced their hand. The Guardian of the West Gate may have emerged from the depths of Moria, though I'm not sure if that's actually confirmed. This Watcher, it had killed Owen, who is one of the dwarves in Thor and Oakenshield's party, and Gimli's uncle. This was during Balin's quest to retake Moria, I think about 30 years prior. Watching this scene gives me mad Cthulhu vibes, which I can see Peter Jackson going for that Lovecraftian angle here. The books further don't describe the beast much beyond its tentacles, 12 in the films instead of 21 as described, which I am pretty sure was just a limitation of the CGI rendering at the time. Yeah, no, I think the I think the Cthulhu call is a really, really good one and is not something that I had clocked initially, which I think maybe speaks to, again, how passive of a movie watcher I am. Um, but one of the other kind of uh, legendary monsters that, that I think this is really quite reminiscent of is, um, and oh my god, I'm so sorry to all class- classicists for the pronunciation job I'm about to do here, but um, Scylla and Charybdis, who are two monsters that like I think are most famously faced by Odysseus uh, in, in the Odyssey, obviously. Um, and um, there, there's kind of an, an idiom that drives from them. It's like between Scylla and Charybdis, which is like a fancier, more pretentious way of being like between a rock and a hard place. Um, and Charybdis is, I think, most often described as like a whirlpool. And I think there is actually a whirlpool in Greece that um, they've kind of... I hate this kind of approach to like folk stories, but anyways... 
there's like this there's this singular whirlpool that they're like this is the source of grape this Anyways, um, I feel like that is pretty uh, analogous on the off to Tamoria. Um, Kreebdis, you know, socks down these these sailors never to return, and Moria more or less does the same thing to the various dwarves who pass through. Um, and then Skilla, kind of contrastingly, um, is described as like quite a few different things. Um, I think she gets described as like a corrupted naiad, um, and naiads are kind of like these. Um, nymphs, I guess, is the best way to do this. And again, I'm very sorry to the classicists. Um, but in um, Hygienius's Fabulae, um, she's described as like a many-headed, many-necked creature with 12 arms. Um, so I feel like you kind of get that like that classical inheritance there in this with the with the 12. And in the books, it's Boromir who disturbs the water by skipping rocks, but perhaps fitting with the played-up naivety of the hobbits, it's Merry and Pippin who provoke the monster here. Yeah, and so I think this is really good, and I think this is a really effective book-to-movie change, um, because in the books, um, Boromir kind of just throws a stone in because he's fucked off everything that's going on, which is like, okay, fair enough. Um, But it's also kind of meant to be a scene that shows, like, despite all of his, like nobility and you know quiet gentility he's also at his core like still a relatively like rash person whose primary emotional recourse in like times of trouble is through like physical activity and action um, and he's not kind of this um quiet level-headed intellectual that i think um both uh aragorn and later his boromir's brother faramir are kind of built up to be as this kind of Tolkien's ideal for, you know, what men of peace should be. Um, In the films, I think taking that away from him also kind of removes a level of culpability for like this attack by the watcher in the water. Um, And I think like broadly, that's that's a a good choice uh, for a variety of reasons, because it's like, okay, look, he's not an absolute villain. He's not fucking things up constantly. Um, But it also gives Pippin a way better starting point for like his personal and character growth, Um, because like here, um, I actually think it might even be Mary who chucks the first stone. But nevertheless, Pippin's always involved because he's a fool of a duck um but pippin sticks his foot in it here and it's kind of just sticking his foot in it through like naivete and kind of just thoughtlessness um but later in Minas Tirith, when he swears his fealty to denethor um gandalf kind of huffs and puffs like pippin's also been a twat again and stuck his foot in it but we actually see that pippin's bright-eyed bushy-tailed nature is actually handy um because later on several scenes after he swears his fealty in this thing that is apparently foolish it's pippin who raises the alarm on denethor's attempt to immolate himself in faramir and therefore pippin who saves the day um and i think also kind of as, as an extension of that it builds up this idea that like the hobbits are really from a world where nothing is dangerous um gandalf does touch on this in the books where he's like you know this isn't one of your hobbit walking parties stop doing dumb shit um but i feel like here is such a in the films it's such a visceral way of, of like highlighting how wildly different the world of the hobbits is from kind of the the world without or the real world in, in a sense they're almost kind of middle earth dodo birds i think boromir especially as kind of how sean bean plays him seems very like world weary but also just weary and tired in general because he's been fighting this war against mordor protecting the lands of gondor and i just feel like someone who 
is like that would just be a little less reckless or wouldn't be someone who, you know, disturbs the water. And like you say, the hobbits are really stepping out into the broader world and outside the Shire for the first time. So they just seem like they would be more likely to, you know, disturb the water and provoke something underneath. And I think you are right that Mary technically throws the first stone. And I really get the sense that Pippin did it because Mary did it first. It's very much, um, these comes in pints. I want one now too. Um, he's always trying to keep up with the brandy box or something like that. But um, a lot of the plot really, especially as depicted in the films, is about Pippin's naivete or his kind of naivete leading to bigger plot developments. It's going to cause that, you know, orc swarm that uh, starts in Moria and then the examples you brought up in Minas Tirith. Um, I think all of that works pretty pretty well with his character. And like you say, it kind of kicks off his arc. So um, like you say, I think overall, this is a good adaptation choice and it actually benefits basically all the characters involved, which is rare to see these days. Yeah, for sure. And I also think, I think you are totally right about like Boromir's kind of weariness and almost, almost cynicism in the films and kind of adding, being added to by this change. And, and I was trying to just there think about why, why it is that, um, I, they maybe could have done this in the books and not really sacrificed Boromir's character on the whole in a way that they maybe would have if they had in the films. And I think it really is just another one of these kind of film versus book constraints where the books have hundreds and hundreds of pages to build up this this sense of like nobility, but also this kind of war weariness and, and cynicism on Boromir's behalf. Whereas in the films, we really only have like an hour with Boromir. And so they have to do an immense amount of character work in a very, very short span of time um and any kind of slips like that i think would have um could have been too easily like interpreted in wildly different ways and and almost maybe kind of made him a bit farcical or, or comical in a way that in in the books it just doesn't come off because there's not that extra time to build up yeah and something we're going to talk about a lot in this and our episode in two weeks about the second half of moria is they're doing all that character work for Boromir within this like hour, hour and a half, like you say, but it's also, they have to juggle nine or eight characters at one time while doing all this work and finding ways to give little character moments, even if it's just a line or with single minor action to beef up the characters. Um, it's very valuable. It's, you know, how you use the time that is given to you, but in terms of filmmaking, not, not in terms of life. And that kind of segues into our next point. Uh, this is our first time seeing the fellowships bring into action together. And there's, you know, some decent teamwork happening. The big men, Boromir and Aragorn, wade out into the pool and start trimming off tentacles. And they call for Legolas to land an elfishly precise arrow right in the Watcher's eye. It's a minor sequence in the grand scheme of things, but it both, you know, shows off the teamwork of the fellowship, but is also an ill omen of what awaits them in Moria. Yeah. And I think it is also kind of to go back to like some of the video game language you introduced in some of the earlier episodes of the podcast. It's kind of like a skill check or like a competency check. Um, because this is like a, sm I mean, it's not, you know, it's not for Frodo who's getting his ass dragged through the water. It's not a small thing, but it is on, on, you know, the wider world scale and um, a relatively small monster. And um, it is definitely one of the first monsters we've seen in the film beyond the Nazgul. Um, and it does show, go to show like the importance of having the fellowship at full strength, but it's not yet the Balrog. Um, and so it does kind of two things where it like sets the, the lower end of, um, uh, of the like 
skill requirements for going into Moria for us. We know that they need to be able to defeat the Watcher. Um, and they haven't fully defeated it either, which is, I think, also kind of some foreshadowing in a sense, because the only way they get out of that fight is by getting away from it. Um, and that also, I think, goes to building up this this sense that, like, you know, we see Legolas nail that that shot. We see um, Aragorn and Boromir wading through properly and really having a go at it and, and putting in a really good fight. Um, but even then, they can't fully defeat it. They can get far enough away. They can get themselves enough time. And so later, when we see the Balrog, there's an even greater sense of scale for the danger, having seen this already. Yeah, well, I never put that together, but yeah, both with the Watcher and the Balrog, the first instinct or the first tactic is to flee. Um, and even uh, Gandalf's, you know, stand on the bridge was more about, you know, having him fall to his, probably not death because, you know, he is a fallen Maiar or whatever you want to consider a Balrog. So, um, yeah, no, I think that's great. I never even thought about that before. Well, and I think it kind of does for me, the the whole ethos of these films is that um, for the most part, they are always running away from danger. They never take a fight when they don't have to take a fight. Um, Boromir is the only one who is has any sort of interest in taking a fight when it's not forced on them. And, and for that reason, it, he ends up being corrupted by the ring and dying. This instinct to run and this instinct to, to kind of have a sense of self-preservation that extends beyond kind of like the end of your nose is I think really the the kind of fight fighting combat ethos of this film and also kind of the the fighting ethos of of all three films and even in a sense some of the book yeah no that's actually interesting now because the only contra example I can think of the one time where they aren't kind of doing that is when uh Pippin directs Treebeard to not drop them off west, but to go south um, and closer to Isengard. And we all know this is a little bit of a trick by Pippin to uh, expose what Isengard has done to Treebeard so he'll, you know, go to war. I don't know how far ahead Pippin was thinking, but that's the only time I can think of them going towards danger in quite the same way. Um, At least at this point, I think, you know, Aragorn does rush the Black Gate at the end, so maybe that's something else entirely. yeah, well, that's the like death rattle. I think in a way they 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 don't think they're gonna win. They have no other options, so they have to mm-hmm. do this kind of valiant suicide. Whereas here, at least, even the other option is running into Moria. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a very good point. Uh, I already mentioned the Lovecraftian influence here, and I think by adding uh, eyes and mouth to what was just tentacles in the book really does a lot of the heavy lifting there. But one disparate connection I made is to Ultros, which is a squid-like character in Final Fantasy VI, which is actually a podcast I'm going to be starting soon called Searching for Friends about the story of Final Fantasy VI. But uh, Ultros himself is based on Kraken, which is the terminology that Emily used uh, in her recap. And Krakens are something that heavily factor into fantasy overall, especially those that are uh, adjacent to seafaring cultures. Uh, Looking at A Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones, um, the Ironborn and the Greyjoys are um, commonly associated with Krakens. Uh, That is actually the sigil of House Greyjoys. So uh, big fantasy touchstone here. So uh, moving on to the Dwarvish Kingdom of Moria, or Dwarodelf, or Khazad-dûm. Uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier, and we'll talk about it a little more next week in our Gimli-sode. But just some you know, overarching facts about it is that Dwarodelf was founded by Doran the Deathless, um, and he found this location by stumbling upon the Mirror Mirror, or the 
Khaled Zaram. Um, I'm going to stop asking for apologies for my pronunciation and just kind of go with whatever comes out of my <laughs> mouth. But um, I think uh, I should have put this whole story here, but I believe that Durin came across this silver pool at the foot of the mountain and the way that the three peaks above it kind of looked like a crown and reflected itself in the pool, um, kind of like was auspicious in a way and led him to build um, a kingdom here. Is that roughly correct, Emily? Yeah, that's basically it. Um, and it's also um, very similar um, to this this old... Um, and now that I've brought this up, it has literally just vanished from my mind. So I'm going to get all of the names wrong. And, and I'm also going to make it sound way weaker than it is. But there is an old story. Um, and it is based certainly on some historical merit in the lots of kings of Scotland hallucinated lots of weird shit and then wrote it down. But there was a king of Scotland. I'm going to call him David because I assume he was King David. Um, who went into uh, went hunting in Holyrood Park, which is, well, it wasn't Holyrood Park then, but on Holyrood, um, which is the big... Uh, extinct volcano in the middle of Edinburgh um, and he saw a golden stag uh, that was high above uh, the loch that he was at um, in the middle um, of the the kind of shadow of one of the points of Arthur's seat um, which was of course then not also not called Arthur's seat um, but where he saw that stag with the golden antlers he built uh, St. Anthony's uh, uh, chapel overlooking the the law um St Margaret's law I think it is um and now to this day uh in the few parts of uh, Edinburgh uh, that have not been ruined by the council um you can still see the uh golden antlers on uh Cannon Gate uh Kirk um and I feel like that is quite quite reminiscent of this Duran story and then lastly uh there is the bridge of Casa Doom which we'll talk about next uh, next time or when we return to these recaps um but it has it's a very key military strategy point for the dwarves at least in terms of invading armies into moria and it's no mistake that gandalf will pick that location to make his stand against the balrog but we will get there when we get there gollum gets a soft launch into the story's rising action here we only glimpse him from too near or too far, either a shadowy shape in the distance or a close-up on his eyes and fingers. Some of this, surely, is just holding back his character and CGI budget for The Two Towers, where he makes a, med a medium-breaking debut, as in he changes cinema going forward. But it's also indicative of where we are at this point in The Fellowship. His presence is right on us, but his actual interaction with the story is still half a movie away. I don't have smart words for this, but I just love the we're being followed tension that arises from Gollum. Danger lies ahead, but also behind, ever just off screen and out of reach. Literally, when Sam and Frodo capture him in the opening of the two towers, they reach up and pull him down to them. Yeah, I mean, th this just this really rocks beyond words. Um, I, I think it is a, a really brilliant way of including this. Um, and um, it, it, it kind of does two things for me. One is like the, this, you know, danger is ahead um, and also behind that, that you talked about. But it, it but it also talks brings again the like tangibility of the the past and and this kind of um it it, it like <laughs> i don't know how to say this in a non-winky way but it like problematizes the present which is that the present is not just something that we like passively accept there is this like active there's this force being acted upon the present by both the the future and what the future is kind of calling and beckoning um of of the present but there's also the past 
acting very, very heavily on the present. Um, and in this case, Gollum um, and and the past that was, you know, Bilbo's trek to, to Arabor um, and and uh, Frodo's recent past and accepting the ring and taking the ring, well, not taking the ring, but being uh, uh, willed the ring by Bilbo is quite literally chasing them. Um, and so not only is it danger, but it is the, the choices of the past um, being very viscerally shown to them um, in a way that makes it, um, they, they literally cannot escape it, but they also can't make anything of it until they are willing to accept what these consequences of the past are. Um, and so not only are they like reaching down, reaching up rather, and accepting um, danger in, into their um, lives when they, when they tame Gollum, um, they are also, or Frodo at least, is also accepting the kind of consequences of his past and now having to make this, this, this symbol of his past, Gollum, into something of his future. Sorry, I'm going to do a little plug for my Metal Gear podcast here because that reminds me of what another king once said, that king being Solid Snake, of course. Um, and at the end of Metal Gear Solid 2, which is a game about how we can't let the digital landscape of the world make us forget who we are as people. Um, and he talks about it's important for us to pass down our messy history and the mistakes of the past to future generations, that fighting for the future and keeping the past alive are one and the same thing. And I think something we'll talk about a lot going forward, um, especially I think in two weeks from now when we talk about Gandalf actually deciding he wants to fight the Balrog here and now, is that it's not just enough to keep marching past or forward to Mordor and destroying the ring, but there's a lot of evil that's left in its wake that also deserves an accounting for. Um, so I really like that point that you're making there. The extended edition does have a couple more nods to Gollum telling the party, mainly a shot of him riding along behind the Lorien boats when they get on the Great River in about an hour from now. An hour in movie time, not an hour uh, in real time. <laughs> Some say he's still on that river. So the discussion of Gollum leads Frodo to say it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum before, but Gandalf correctly points out that it was pity that stayed Bil Bilbo's hand, not the other way around which leads us into, ostensibly, the film's premise. Frodo laments all the bad fortune he's experienced in being the ring-bearer, but Gandalf assures him that this is a thought common to everyone who sees such darkness. There's little point in fretting over that. The real power we wield is in how we choose to confront that darkness. It's a message that the film will replay in Frodo's mind during the breaking of the Fellowship, which has some of my favorite camera dissolves and score work in this first film. But we'll get there. Gandalf's comments about how, they are, uh, how there are other forces at work other than evil is another one that I really like. One thing I think about in this hell world of 2021 and Mount Doom scrolling is how I feel <laughs> assaulted by how much bad news there is in the world on literally every level. From my personal life to local, state, and national politics to the suffering around the world, it's hard not to feel that it's only evil shaping the world these days. We could put a name to that evil such as imperialism, Western chauvinism, capitalism, apartheid, but that's for another day. But there are often forces of good acting in this world, though those evil forces do their best to obscure them, to make us blind to any hope we may have. In this era of imperial decline, the good often feels little, late, and Sisyphean. But there are thousands, if not millions, of people fighting for something better, which is an encouraging thought. 
and I am also loath to bring up the Star Wars sequels, but there is something to the bit about darkness rises and light to meet it that I feel truly that rings true here. The night is darkest just before the dawn or something like that. Yeah, another great Andy Serkis line as well. Um, and and it is also, I think, quite interestingly, uh, the uh, line that I use to explain why I kind of, why this bit kind of sticks in my craw. Um, and, and it sticks in my craw kind of interestingly because almost all of these lines are lines that appear in uh, the book at various points. Um, but there are certain cuts in the film um, to the dialogue that actually changes the overall meaning of the dialogue. Um, or, or like tone changes between the book and the films that change what the purpose of this is. Um, and I think one of the things that kind of makes me laugh is that throughout the books, Gandalf routinely um, does this whole, I don't want to call it necessarily like predestination because it's not predestination in the like theological sense, but there there is this kind of heavy emphasis on destiny and a very specific destiny from Gandalf. Um, and in the books, I think it's kind of meant to show that like he is trying to to show that there is this level of optimism and he's saying, you know, things may be bad, but there is something um, necessarily good awaiting us in the future. Um, and uh, one of my favorite interactions um, and and actually one of the first things I think I like highlighted in my book when I first started reading Fellowship like a year ago was um, Gandalf is like, um, the ring was meant to come to you and that should bring you some comfort. And Frodo is like, it does not. He does not miss a beat. There is no like dialogue tag between Gandalf's line and Frodo's line. It is Gandalf saying that should bring you comfort. And immediately Frodo is like, it does not. In the movie, Gandalf also says the same thing. And he's like, it should bring you comfort. And Frodo doesn't respond. Um, and I think this is really, really interesting um, because it comes to this like central question of what the message of Lord of the Rings is. Um, and um, I think people rightly differ on this and I'm not necessarily saying that like my position is the absolutely correct one, but, but to me, the, the fundamental question of the Lord of the Rings is, is a question of choice. Um, and I think there's like a really beautiful case to be made that like in these books, the most profound display of love is following. So Sam follows Frodo into Mordor, Ar Arwen follows Aragorn into mortality, Eowyn trying and ultimately being rebuffed from following um, Aragorn into the Dwemerdine, that sort of thing. Um, but I want to kind of build on that thesis and argue that like the underlying value of that following motif is actually free choice. And, um, you know, there, there's probably like an episode long discussion to be had about the matter of choice and legendarium, like especially as it relates to the elves, who I think have really interesting. Um, but in The Lord of the Rings itself, we're dealing with primarily creatures like the hobbits and men who do, in fact, have absolute free will, which which basically means their choices are very much their own to make. Um, I, I, and so in, in that sense, it is therefore like really significant that the characters make the choices they do. Frodo choosing to take the ring, the ring not coming to Frodo without hope of it going elsewhere. Frodo choosing to take that ring, Aragorn choosing to become the king, Eowyn choosing to become a healer, but also Denethor choosing to kill himself and his son, Saruman choosing to align with Sauron. And Theoden, for example, choosing to let Grima control him, which is an adaptation choice I will bitch about later. Um, all of these choices that I've just listed there are, are like choices that are made freely. Um, and I think is that free choice that is significant. You can't predict that good will necessarily come at some indeterminate point in the future because it very much 
might not come at all is the fact of these ongoing good choices um, that I think really kind of powers what Lord of the Rings is and does. And so like Gandalf's various lines about this kind of semi-predestination thing um, in the films kind of take away that element of choice in a small way. Um, if the ring was always meant to go to Frodo, then there is some way in which his choice to take it wasn't really his own because it would have found its way to him anyways. And also, if it was always meant to come to Frodo, and we know that Frodo is the one who is both simultaneously strong and weak enough to have taken the ring to Mount Doom, then the ring would have always brought itself to its own doom. Um, and so, like, in the books, Tolkien paints God, who, who is Eru Luvatar in the books, as, like, an essentially detached figure. Um, like, Eru created the world and set its parameters, but he rarely, very rarely intervenes. And actually, there is some discussion about whether or not um, the ring coming to Frodo is is uh, one of these rare interventions, divine interventions. But nevertheless, um, th this kind of passive God um, basically leads to, like, a world with high levels of entropy. <laughs> for want of a better word and please understand that I didn't like get a gentleman C in <laughs> physics in high school so I may be using that wrong um, but like that entropy is basically means that like it's a world where nothing is set in stone except for the past and even then there are like interpretations of it um, and so that entropy means that like even the agents of good or like the agents of God still face unknowable situations and unknowable odds um, and there is always the possibility of failure um, and I'm going to come back to this, like, uh, slightly fucked up idea of Middle-earth as, like, a high entropy system in uh, a couple episodes when we get to the Balrog, um, because I think it's, like, a, an interesting, there's an interesting comparison to be made between um, it and another book that I reference way too frequently on this podcast, which is Dante's Inferno. Um, but I think, basically, <laughs> to, to sum up <laughs> that little rant there, um, I feel like this this sense of like oh it was always predestined to to come to you it was always predestined to to uh work out well and you should draw comfort from that is actually kind of an undermining of this far more interesting point which is that it wasn't necessarily going to be like this it wasn't necessarily going to be this bad or this good it is the fact that people make these conscientious and active choices that has made it this way and that is the thing that we should draw our optimism from no, I think that's a very valid read. Uh, I don't think I agree, which might be the first time on this podcast that I'm saying that. Um, I always kind of read the line more as, first of all, I one of those forces at work in the world, I also view as luck or chance. Um, and it is almost like uh, Gandalf saying is kind of good luck that it wound up in Bilbo and now your hands, not that it was kind of predestined. Um, and then I also think back to, you know, one of my favorite movies, a movie that's kind of reviled by a lot of people, The Matrix Reloaded, where, you know, Neo's like, so it's about choice. And the Oracle's like, no, you've already made the choice. Now you have to understand why. Um, I don't think Gandalf is trying to undercut the choice m made by Frodo at, you know, both back in the Shire and at the Council of Elrond. But now it's like, you know, that choice has been made, and now what comes from that is what comes from that. So um, I think your reading is totally valid and fine. I did not think it undercut, and I didn't think it was like it was predestined to go to Frodo, just that other things are at work here, and it was just kind of good fortune uh, that you know the ring ended up in your hands, which will allow us to carry on this quest. So 
Um, you know, I, I think both readings are valid. Of course, I'd say that because I think <laughs> my reading is valid. But, um, yeah, no, no, I, I think that's for sure, for sure true. Um, and I, and I also feel like um, a lot of what's happening in um, in in how I take these lines in, in the films and in the books is the like um, is I think in a book context, it's fair enough to like read into every single word exactly down to the definition and exactly down to what each word placement is doing. But it's slightly less fair for me to do that in the films because there's so much else that goes on into like conveying the message and the meaning of uh of of each of these words and each of these bits of dialogue and i think like there is certainly the case to be made that like um a lot that goes on in um gandalf's affect uh, you know as played by ian mckellen um kind of undermines that like necessarily like hard hard line predestination take that i have um and that might just be me being a bit too like a bit too like sola scriptura for lack of a better term Oh, no, not at all. I think part of the reason our podcast is the way it is, is because I think, you know, we're approaching it from kind of different angles. And um, I'm trying to couch it as much as I can. And just, hey, th I watched these films and fell in love with them. What are books? I don't know how to read. Um, so, uh, no, I think it's I think it's very valuable because I, I don't think I've ever heard any criticism of this scene at all until this. And I think we need these kind of criticisms um, because it just either strengthens our love or makes us understand what speaks to us as art so that uh, I, I couldn't ask for anything more from you so I love it to be honest. Uh, when Gandalf remembers the correct path he attributes it to the air smelling less foul down there this makes me think of Galadriel's prologue and how she smelled it in the air it's not just evil but decay decay of morality decay of the world that plagues us and another note that uh, Emily touched on in her uh, recap was I like that Boromir and Aragorn are just off to the side chilling, having their own conversation. We don't know what they talk of, but surely these two great men would have a lot of stories to exchange. So I like to see them having some feelings chat, which I presume they are having. <laughs> um, I think I'm about to say the worst thing that I'm ever going to say on this podcast. Um, but uh, I now realize that I missed a massive slam dunk on Gladiel in the prologue by just heading her with uh, whoever smelt it, dealt it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of true. <laughs> Oh God, that's so good. We'll uh, we'll do a extended edition of our own podcast, and when we go back to uh, that, we'll add in that joke as an extended edition scene. So, uh, on to one of my favorite little moments uh, in uh, in this sequence, um, and I think now, given the context of me just like dunking, not dunking, but like ragging relentlessly on Gandalf, it do it definitely comes off maybe and not the like joyful way that I mean, but the final interaction between Gandalf and Pippin after Pippin knocks the arrow and then the skeleton down the well is absolutely vicious. Um, and as I was kind of scrolling through the the scene um, to write the recap, I was like, this is a genuinely painful scene to watch. I have to like watch it with one eye closed because um, Ian McKellen as Gandalf is really turning up Gandalf's nastiness properly to 11. And like, it is definitely like he's being antagonized. Pippin is doing stupid shit it's definitely deserved but he's really going for the like angry nasty element of it and in reaction billy boyd as pippin is looking so desperately sad the whole way through like his face properly melts he's so sad looking and he's got the puppy dog eyes and that contrast between like gandalf's nastiness and pippin's sad face is 
<laughs> incredibly compelling, but I also think just makes it incredibly hilarious as well because like Pippin looks like he's dying inside. He actively looks like the light is leaving his body and Gandalf looks like he's dragging the light out of his body if it will kill him. Um, which is, I think, just like a masterful little bit of like um, scene play and like acting uh, from from these two very good actors. Um, and I, I just wanted to point that out. Um, but it also raises, I think, the far more interesting question for me, at least, is um, like, do you think that Pippin holds this over Gandalf's head forever? Because like, this is the thing that triggers the Balrog, essentially. So do you think Pippin is like, in a year from now, Gandalf is mouthing off to him. He's like, I summon the Balrog to kill you once, bitch. Don't think I won't do it again. Uh, he really stole the Palantir so that he can be like, yo, Sauron, you got anyone who can deal with this Gandalf fellow? And, Gan- <laughs> and Sauron was like, yeah, we got this witch king guy. I'll, I'll, I'll deploy him now. Um, that's a secret canon they won't let you know. Um, and I, yeah, I think this is a great uh, thing that you point out because um, much to Emily's chagrin, in two weeks from now, I'm actually going to be very praiseworthy of Gandalf, at least as depicted in the films. And I think there is an element of him you know he is a kindly grandfather figure but he's also like that strict school marm kind of guy um marm might not be the right word but like he is kind of like has that like older teacher who will be be kind when you need him to be kind but also be harsh when he needs to be harsh um and it very much feels like a teacher scolding a student here which i think is just the right dynamic but so now we'll transition into our film craft portion of this episode Going back to The Watcher in the Water, I want to discuss the film's tone heading into Moria. We've already talked about how The Watcher is a fully realized monster in a way that it isn't in the books, full on with eyes and gaping maw, which big Sarlacc vibes. This scene is also played as an action one, and rightfully done in the dark to help cover the gaps in CGI, but in invoking the Lovecraftian horror, primes us for the titular Journey into the Dark. Before they are set on this path, we already get a sense of dread when the doors of Durin open. As they carefully enter the mines, and Gimli is waxing poetic about it, it's Boromir who notes it's actually a tomb, and the ground is revealed to be covered in skeletons, dead dwarfs, stuck with orc blades and goblin arrows. This is its own path of the dead, one that the Fellowship is forced to take after the Watcher caves in the entrance. There is no escape, after all. Upon the caving, the screen goes dark, and only by Gandalf's staff do we get some light for our descent into the dark. While Gandalf's light provides a focal point for these early scenes in Moria, I want to call out both the overall coloring and contrast in these scenes. Gone are the blues, greens, and whites of the Fellowship's march south from Rivendell. It's all grays and browns, vibrant in its own dull way. Calling back to our discussion about Weathertop, I absolutely love how clear the picture is in the scene. Despite the overall darkness in terms of light and color, everything is visible. Every mineshaft, every bucket, broken archway, and winding stair. There is clarity no matter the setting, something that feels like we don't see as much anymore, at least in blockbuster cinema. Yep, 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 yep. Totally agree. Um, and and I think you are absolutely correct to to highlight this. Um, and and it's actually interesting because um, my partner and I were just arguing about this right before I sat down to record because um, we were trying to decide if um Gandalf's uh staff at the very start is like a major light source. Um, because there are a couple goofs in this sequence where you can see a cable running out of his staff um and and so it's like the basically we're arguing to give you a valuable insight into what we're like um the extent to which that is like the primary light source in the scene um and i think it seems like it could definitely have been 
um, you know, not just the only light in the scene, but definitely enough to like really power um, at least some of those early scenes, um, most of the lighting. Um, he contends, and and um, upon further reflection, and this does pain me to say, I think he's probably right. Um, but that the darkness was probably largely added in post production, um, and so the the scenes themselves would have been filmed in almost ideal light, like like ideal stage or cinema lighting, um, and then the darkness added to them second added to the scene secondarily um and i think this is like a really interesting again like uh moment to add to or like entry into our kind of anti-hyper realism um bent on on this podcast which is that like just because something is filmed or meant to be set in the dark does not mean you need to film it in the dark you can trust and expect that your actors can act like they are walking around in the dark without having to actually turn off all the fucking lights and make them bumble around and there are things that you can add to um a a scene or to a film in post-production that will um change the lighting um in a substantial way in an effective way and you know even if it maybe doesn't look as convincingly dark like total nighttime dark is enough to convey the message of the setting which is that it's dark and you don't lose anything so there's really no no point to doing all of this shit at night yeah, no, I think you're exactly right, because there are a couple shots where the light is mainly, at least in terms of what we're interpreting from the film, is just coming from Gandalf's staff, um, both in this march and later when they're circled by the orcs before the Balrog comes. And the way the light is coming from his staff doesn't look natural. Um, it definitely looks like something is done, whether it's with that light or with the darkness around it or a combination of the two. But again, in keeping with the film's aesthetic choices, it works because it it does feel like that's magic coming from a wizard and it's not just like oh he has a flashlight you know jammed in between the twigs on his staff or something <laughs> yeah yeah and, and again it's, it's just one another one of these things where like um if you don't draw attention to it nobody's really necessarily going to think about it so it does what you need it to do effectively it also doesn't sacrifice any um visibility in terms of the thing that you are trying to film on screen so why would you not do it why why would you take that kind of riskier worse approach when you don't have to uh, now it's going to stick in my head when I see these scenes that I have to look for the cable that's coming out of Gandalf's staff. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like um, there's a moment in Return of the Jedi in the throne room where uh, Luke kicks Vader down uh, you know, a set of stairs right in front of the Emperor, and then Vader gets up, and then you can see the shadow on his lightsaber, which theoretically <laughs> shouldn't have a shadow. It's just one of those things that once you hear it or see it, you just can't unsee it. It's done for. These scenes do play slightly different than the text in that the object horror of it is punched up thanks to the Watcher and the trail of corpses the Fellowship follows. While it's clear nothing good is down here in the books either, the actual revelation and horror comes a bit later. It almost plays as a mystery. Granted, the book has horror elements here and the film has its own mystery, but seeing the push and pull between these two is perhaps Jackson leaning into what he does best. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and I think this is also like one of these things where it's like, this is why these kind of comparisons between book and film um, are so valuable. And, and at least for me, so interesting because, you know, Tolkien brings what he knows to the books under the constraints of writing about a book uh, or writing a book, not writing about a book. Well, he is also writing about a book. 
Anyways, um, whereas Jackson brings what he knows to the films under the constraints of making a film. And even though on paper these things are identical, you get such wildly different outcomes. And I think that like contrast between the outcome is super, super fascinating to me. And you're so right to point it out here because it is um, a very different kind of feel and vibe to the scene. And in both cases, both very effective, but also doing... The, that level of effectiveness in such a different way texturally that I think it is uh, well worth noting. And I don't even know why I'm bringing this up. It's just standard standard camera work. But when the company arrives at the diverging path, I really like how the camera zooms in on Gandalf's face as he says, I have no memory of this place. It's probably just because of the excellent makeup work and McKellen's acting, but seeing every aspect of that furrowed brow and wrinkled confusion really sings in that shot. Yeah, um, and and here's for another uncharitable take on Gandalf. Um, I'm going to say that it's Gandalf not often admitting his lack of knowledge. I think a more charitable way to say that would be Gandalf is not often lacking knowledge um but either way um he's he's not often um admitting to his lack of knowledge and and so in this scene to see up close and personal his emotional reaction to not knowing exactly what's going on is is a really excellent way of amping up the confusion of the whole scene and builds stakes in such like a small and subtle but effective way yeah we talked last time about the adaptation choice about uh, making Gandalf the one that's hesitant to go uh, into Moria. And I feel like this feels like a nice logical next step. If you're going to go that route, it makes sense to have him. Because um, now it really does feel like Gandalf is out of his element, which again is probably building towards that big Balrog encounter that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Yeah, they're having to nerf him in advance because otherwise, like, why the fuck couldn't he just curb stomp uh, Balrog? He should be able to. Yeah, and honestly, he forgets, but then the first thing he does is light up another bowl. Um, his his love of the halfling leaf, man, it's uh, soured his thinking. <laughs> um, yeah, no, before I make a, an insane point about uh, the big Lebowski, which I'm just not going to do, actually, um, I would like to talk instead about um, Moria. Uh, and one of the first shots that we see in Moria is this incredible shot um, from above, aerial shot, looking down um, at the kind of depth of Moria. Um, and you see... Uh, scaffolding like minor scaffolding all along the walls as you look down I mean it's incredibly reminiscent of the scaffolding that we see at Isengard um, and that for me is is uh, one of these really cool instances in which like the strong anti-industrialization agenda of this film comes up um, and and it does again something really interesting with like the kind of overall morality of this film because by linking Isengard and Moria um, and also doing it at a point when, you know, we, the only dwarf we know so far is Gimli. So we know that they're not inherently evil and we know that at least one of them is on our side, but we see this kind of unmissable and undeniable link between them and the big bad of this film. And so it's like a really great way of reminding us as the audience that good and bad as terms, as labels are maybe not as like efficient as they might seem because there is so much gray space between them and and the set is just doing this incredible job of reinforcing that. No, that's a great comparison. I had never put those two things together, but I think that's exactly on the ball. Gandalf's staff, as the only source of diegetic light, pays off when they finally make it to the great halls of Dwarodelf. Gandalf risks a little more light, and his magic lights up the great pillars and archways of the dwarf city. 
I wouldn't call Dwaro Delph the most memorable of the settings in these films, but it definitely leaves an impression, a real eye-opener, as Master Gamgee says. The musical swell of Dwaro Delph is imbued with wonder, but in a manner different than that of, say, Rivendell. The dwarf leitmotifs don't get as much play as others in our saga, but you do catch some of it here. Listen closely to the vocals underneath. It's actually throat singing performed by Maori folks, indigenous to New Zealand. In fact, I think it's a rugby team local to the area that's doing it. The throat singing is a nice change from the Gregorian chants and Alvin choral elements we've heard so far through this film. Wow, and it's almost like it's proof that you can do non-European approaches to fantasy. How very interesting. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the sarcasm aside, the musical soundscape here is one of the things that I think when I was first kind of sitting down to watch these films um, a couple years ago, it was one of the things that really struck me because um, far from it just being kind of a soundtrack to the emotions of the scene, um, the music here is actually doing a lot of like architectural work in itself. It is kind of this like secondary form of like set design in a way without sounding like too wanky um but like in the previous scenes um in Aragian, we've got these like bright blaring horns um and those those do you know as as we discussed in the last episode those serve a lot of purposes but they also serve um a kind of airiness because to have a horn blaring as it does and not immediately deafen you, you have to have a wide space. You have to have an open space. Um, and to get rid of those horns here in favor of these these strings, these really magisterial strings, is to kind of musically enclose what's going on. Um, and it's not like this is like a less um, impressive um, orchestral arrangement here. It certainly isn't. But it's just the way that they're approaching it, I think, Um uh, like, like really adds to that kind of sense of like the this this is something grand this is also something that could theoretically become a tomb um, and then I think you combine that with the fact that um, we've got this um, this throat singing in the background um, or as rather as a centerpiece of of this bit of score um, and it it works to basically be like Moria is something that is constructed it is something man made and we've gotten rid of the uh, horns in the background um, in favor of something that reminds us of the like tangibility of like men and like man's like um, influence on their environment. And I think that is like those are two really, really like um, brilliant um, decisions by Howard Shore here. Balin's tomb gets specific focus within Dwarodelf as Gimli rushes to the tomb of his uncle, realizing with horror that everything here has gone to shite. Casa Doom is described as having several windows from the outside that shine into the dwarven halls, but the film smartly employs just the one we see shining down on the tomb. It gives the setting a cathedral-like feel, like a Knights Templar is buried here. Eh, I don't know if that's actually true, it just makes me think of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> no, no, I think you're totally right on that, um, and everybody's gonna have to like bear with me here because I, I, have, I have a bit of a thing about um, cathedrals and gothic architecture. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, um, like the Dwarrow Delph or, or Moria writ large is kind of like the antithesis of a gothic cathedral. Um, which is a hell of a statement and so something I'm now going to like need to go backwards and, and give you some like context on. Um, but Gothic cathedrals were like in essence created to emphasize light and scale. Um, and so I want you to think about yourself as like a medieval peasant in Western Europe. 
um, you're going to be someone who's operating with um, a very low, uh, like man-made constructed environment. And the houses around you are probably not going to be more than one or two stories tall. Um, you are not really going to be seeing many, like even commercial spaces that are much taller than that because people tend to work out of their homes. Um, and Gothic cathedrals um, are going to be a really, really important um, exception to that rule. Um, they are enormous. Um, and then indoor light, secondarily, is also a luxury, um, especially in sort of Western Europe, Northwestern Europe. Having lots of windows is like prohibitively expensive to heat. And I can tell you as someone in, uh, you know, the far northwest of Europe where I've got like one window in my office and it turns this place into a refrigerator. If you are a peasant without uh, double glazing and thermal curtains, you're going to be having a bad time if you have lots of windows. Um, by contrast... Um, Gothic cathedrals have lots of windows and they are enormous. So you are this medieval peasant. Your houses are short and squat and fairly dark. Almost everything around you, when you walk into a building, it is short and squat and fairly dark. And they would have been furnished with like lots and lots of textiles um, to keep you warm <laughs> so that you wouldn't have to pay for all of the wood. Um, and also your walls likely would not have been particularly colorful because paint, paint pigment is very expensive. Cathedrals are basically the exact opposite to this um, in every imaginable way. They're immensely tall, like I said, um, and um, Gothic cathedrals in particular are really, really innovative in, in terms of like architectural height um, because in France, at the kind of start of the Gothic architectural period, there's this invention of like the flying buttresses, which are the um, like, I don't know a better way to explain it than they're the, the like. Uh, stone masonry scaffolding on the outside of uh, cathedrals that help to literally hold the building up. Um, and, you know, as part of this, they also have these enormous windows, some of which are even stained glass. Like think about the rose window at like Notre Dame, for example. Um, in our kind of post-industrial revolution world, um, we're kind of used to Gothic cathedrals having like relatively dark colored stone, um, but that's actually mostly an effect of like the high smog density of the industrial revolution. And lots of these Gothic cathedrals that are quite famous would have had very, very light colored stone. Um, and many of them actually had their like interior walls painted in super, super vibrant colors. So everything about Gothic cathedrals is built to maximize internal space, to maximize light, to maximize air movement, to maximize color. When you enter a Gothic cathedral, all of the architectural elements are meant to both like draw your eyes upward towards heaven, but also to kind of surround you in the color and like glory of God in the church. So, you know, again, imagine you're a medieval peasant. Imagine how it must have felt to walk into one of these spaces and to see this beautiful, brightly colored and enormous church, to see the sunlight streaming through a stained glass rose window, for example, dappling everything beneath it and basically the rainbow. It would have been like a quite literally stunning effect. And so all of this given, Moria is a corruption of this. Um, beyond the fact that like it literally digs down into the earth instead of reaching up into the sky towards the heavens, it also maximizes darkness. So the high arches that in Gothic arch architecture generally serve to like maximize light here kind of feel more like they're like enforcing darkness and additional shadows. Um, and so Bormir is like obviously right when he says this is a tomb, but it's actually kind of closer to like a, a catacomb in some ways. Um, and one of the things that this really makes me think of um, is this horrifying picture of Tokyo's underground wastewater storage site when it's emptied. 
And it's this massive, I mean, genuinely gargantuan room. Um, and it's meant to hold like hundreds of millions of gallons of water. Um, but in this picture, it is um, totally empty. And uh, there's a man standing in the foreground of the picture. And just for seeing that man, you get a sense of not just how enormous the space is um, and, and how kind of unadorned it is, but also for how deadly it would be to be caught in it because it's so enormous. No one can really hear you scream for help. Um, and, and that to me is Moria in a nutshell. I always try my best to highlight my favorite sound design flourishes or Foley work. And this scene may have my favorite of them, even if it's super duper minor. Gimli's did Dejected head droop has his dwarf helmet clank against the tomb, and it makes the most wonderful stony impact sound that feels very appropriate. Yes, this is exactly what I imagine a dwarf helmet would sound like <laughs> on impact. Heavy, rocky, earthy. Balin's tomb is also one of the most well-realized locations in all the trilogy, as in the next sequence, it will be where a massive set piece takes place. Nine heroes fighting against an orc swarm in a small catacomb could be a nightmare of staging and geography, but this is where the thoughtfulness of production really shines through. Laying out the room in full, with tomb and well and pillars, the additional light from the outside, and the narrow entrance from which the orcs barge in are all clearly set up by the camera before the incoming brawl. And prop work. The journal that Gandalf picks up is so perfectly dusty, the page is so perfectly dried and worn. You can feel the fragility and age of it in McKellen's hands that at any minute it could crumble into dust. And you hear the pages almost creak as he turns the pages. As the silence of Moria is about to give away to drums in the deep, it's cool how much the Foley work does heavy lifty building up to that moment. Which includes the arrow and skeleton and bucket that Pippin sends barreling down the well. Everything is once again super dusty with layers of cobwebs caking it. Pippin twisting the arrow has this rusty-ass noise of something that has been inert for an age that is about to feel gravity for the first time in a long time. And when it and the corpse and the chain and the bucket <laughs> all start falling down the well, we can hear it clanging on its way down to the deepest hell. Every bump, every bang, every clink of the chain perfectly realized and matched up to Pippin and Gandalf's face grimacing at every impact. <laughs> I'm really glad that you bring up uh, Gimli's helmet here, um, because I did promise in one of our previous episodes to talk about Gimli's helmet the first time we see it on screen, and I didn't. Um, sorry, mea culpa, but I'm going to do it now. Um, and I think it is because Gimli's costuming as a whole is super, super fascinating to me, um, and mostly just for like, like it's kind of technical elements. I think like visually it's quite boring in some ways, but it's also kind of meant to be quite boring. So it's okay. I'll give it a pass. Um, but like everything he's wearing is meant to emphasize width. So even though John Reese Davies is actually like the tallest of all the actors, I think he's the only one to like pass six foot. Um, even in like his close up shots, he looks super small and compact and squat because they're kind of picking these like, um, slightly longer line uh uh silhouettes to to really kind of bring him both lower to the ground and extend him past the actual natural lines of his body the thing that i did want to talk about however in detail is the helmet 
Um, and I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the like historical inspiration for uh, the helmet is. And there are stunningly few notes um, on the internet or in any library that I've got access to that deal with costuming. So it's been quite difficult to piece this together. But the closest I can get to the historical inspiration for Gimli's helmet is the Imperial Gallic helmet from ancient Rome. Um, and I'll put a picture of that up on um, our Instagram and probably our Twitter as well because I'm, it would be very, very right for most people to hear that and not have a fucking clue what I'm talking about. It's definitely fair enough. Um, the kind of main differentiation between like uh, Imperial Gallic helmet and the one that Gimli wears is that rather than having a metal neck guard, Gimli's has a leather one um, and his is way, way more decorated. The Imperial Gallic one seemed to me um, to kind of be like the the kind of not mass produced because it's hard to mass produce stuff like that, but essentially the mass produced kind of layman's helmet. Um, Gimli's instead is actually really interesting because it's got like this really intricate Celtic knotwork around the brim. Um, and then there's also a star slash fire motif on the very front, um, which is uh, fitting because Gimli's name comes from uh, an old Norse poetic word meaning fire. Um, and on the whole, his helmet kind of does a couple important things for me um first for being like rather short and squat and tucked close to the top of his head and then leveled out um it emphasizes his smallness but also extends his face horizontally emphasizing his bulk but it also sets him apart from pretty much everybody else in the fellowship he's the only one who spends the entire series hauling ass in full armor it's literally 70 pounds i feel very very bad um, but, the, it, you know, this is also like a really clear character statement. Um, you know, there's the muted color, the fact that it's like really quite roughed up even from the start and that it's got this like really interesting pattern work that looks quote unquote foreign to the patterns we see elsewhere. And um, on the whole, it's just really excellent and like efficient design, costume design. Um, and I think maybe one of the um, elements of costuming in the series that is um, vastly underrated relative to the amount of work it does. Um, one of the ones that is, is not <laughs> vastly underrated is um, Legolas's costume. Um, and I, I would just like to talk about this because I did do a bit of dunking on his costume at the Council of Elrond, but he's had a costume change, so he looks a little better now, a little bit more like Link. Um, and just a couple of things, um, you know, he's wearing green, which in Moria isn't necessarily great camo, um, but texturally there's a lot that's going on with what he's wearing that i think is kind of worth pointing out um like his palette is kind of i guess rugged um would be the best way to talk about it it's you know really really muted earth tones like these muddy greens these khakis and these kind of cooler tone umbers um the actual material of his costume isn't rugged at all um it looks like he's almost dressed head to toe in suede um, and the highest def pictures I've been able to see really do look like suede to me. I mean, that seems like it would have been a nightmare to keep clean, but maybe they did. They had, they had more money than I do. So maybe. Um, and I think that is like, if it is suede, it's a really fascinating and clever choice because it lets the colors do most of the talking as in you look at what he's wearing and you see that he is dressed for life in the woods. Um, but it's actually building up this really interesting contrast to like the harder, more obvious leathers that Boromir and Aragorn are wearing, or even like Gimli's chainmail or the Hobbit's velvet and linen. Um, and it also kind of softens everything up. Like it is, you know, it's it's a fairly sturdy fabric, but it's also kind of like a fuzzy fabric, um, which kind of furthers the sense of Legolas being ethereal. Um, so even though his color palette is tethering him very much to the earth, this kind of ethereal feeling and um, this soft and hazy feeling is also kind of putting him 
putting some distance between him and like the earth that, that we understand. Um, and then, of course, because I must talk about the embroidery, um, the embroidery on his costume is just absolutely beautiful. And in Moria specifically, and maybe unexpectedly, um, we get some really nice shots that that emphasize it. Um, I think it's one of the first times we see quite clearly like the vine motifs along his chest and shoulders, um, which are also mirrored in his like van braces. And then um, on his belt, which I don't really think you get a good view of in the film, but if you go look at the costume pictures, you can see it for realsies. Um, and like the embroidery is um, literally just like a metallic silver thread doing this kind of vine motif, which is a, like a, a nice way of um, nodding to his sylvan elf heritage because you've got the like um, majesty of the silver embroidery, the, this kind of like royalty vibe, but then the vine motif that says, yes, these are our forest elves, our heck elves. Now we'll transition over to our token token book analysis. Balin will come up more next week when we go into Thorin's company as part of our Gimli-focused episode, but I did want to talk a little bit about him here uh, as well. Balin is the son of Fundin and has a brother, Dwalin. Both brothers would be members of Thorin Oakenshield's company that fought to regain Erebor. Balin had been driven from Erebor along with his kin following the arrival of Smog, and lived in Dunland for a time with other dwarf refugees leading into the War of the Dwarves and the Orcs, part of which we see in the first Hobbit film as a flashback. He accompanied Thorin's father Thrain in an initial attempt to take back the Lonely Mountain from Smog, though Thrain would be lost in that misadventure. He would go on to be part of Thorin's quest properly as depicted in The Hobbit, which I will save for whenever we get to those accursed movies. <laughs> Ken Stott, a Scotsman, would play him in the Hobbit trilogy, and fairly well, I'd say, as he is a genial elder state statesman of the party there. What matters for this story is what comes after the Battle of the Five Armies. Balin would actually come to visit Bilbo in the Shire in the Third Age of 2949, as Balin and Bilbo had developed a keen friendship on their journey. The films, if nothing else, do show Balin as perhaps the closest dwarf to Bilbo in the company. Forty years after that, Balin led a group of dwarves from the Lonely Mountain to Moria in an attempt to restart the dwarf kingdom there. He also hoped to recover some important artifacts of dwarf culture, including one of the Seven Great Rings, as well as Durin's axe and helm. Though he claimed the title of Lord of Moria, his reign would be short-lived. Eventually, he and the entire city would be slain by orcs, though no word of their fate reached the other dwarfish realms. In the books, we learn of Balin's disappearance into Moria many years ago from Gimli's dad, Glowin. So heading into these chapters in the book, there is already an aura of mystery surrounding Moria, some answers that our characters, namely Gimli, may, may have been looking to uncover, which they did in the book of Mazarbul. And to take a slightly zoomed out approach here from the uh, macro and rather interesting personal history of um, Balin, um, and I should also note there is a lovely little mention in, I think it's 
it must be the Council of Elrond scene, and um, where Bilbo is wearing Balin's shirt, which means that like Balin came and visited and then left his shirt. Um, and I think that's a little sweet addition. Um, anyways, to zoom out wildly from that, um, I just want to talk briefly, um, and again, haha, briefly, um, about um, Aula and the Vala um, and the creation of the various races of Middle Earth. Um, and I'm very sorry I prefaced that with briefly because that was a lie. Um, <laughs> So, um, we'll begin, I guess, with the elves. So, the elves and the men were created specifically by Eru Luvatar, who's god. Um, the elves were the firstborn, um, and when they were created, they were, like, tethered inextricably to the fates and um, future of, of Earth, of Arda. Um, and they cannot truly die until the Earth itself dies. Um, and they are, like, bound to the rules of the world through something called the music of the Einar. Um, when the elves die, they're sent to the halls of Mandos, which is like effectively kind of purgatory, but slightly nicer, um, and are there held for a bit until they're reborn into the world. Glorfindel, for example, dies while slaying Balrogs at the fall of Gondolin in the First Age, but is reborn sometime between then and the Third Age because he shows up at the Council of Elrond. Um, the elves cannot truly ever leave the earth um, necessarily, um, but the men, however, um, who are brought into being much, much later, um, are given something unique, which is called in the legendary and the gift of men. Um, this is typically shorthanded to mortality, but it actually means a lot more than that. Um, the men exist basically independently of the earth, um, and when they die, they truly die. There is no knowing where they ultimately go. Um, this is important because it kind of puts them, sets them aside from the fate of the earth and ultimately gives them like a greater sense of choice and free will than the elves. Um, and this broadly kind of aligns with like the Catholic church and what it teaches about free will. God created, God granted humanity the ability to make choices, but he does not necessarily compel them against their will to make good or moral choices. Um, I'm so sorry, but this is going to get a little bit in the theological weeds, so I apologize, but like, um, I do think it's actually kind of a, an important element of the Legendarium generally. Um, we know that the elves are bound to the fate of the Earth, but it's kind of hard to parse out what that means in a moral sense. If the elves only have so much free will, how is it that, for example, Feanor can slay his kin at Alcolande or Maedros at Assyrian? Um, and the answer lies, as with a lot of Tolkien-related things, and Catholic teaching. Um, and I had to go back to Augustine for this, um, and my grasp on Augustine is not near perfect, so bear with me on this very rocky explanation of it all. But... God, or in this case, Eru Iluvatar, created the elves as essentially free, but tethered them to the fate of the earth. That means that through the divine love of Eru, the god or the elves can only do things that are good. Though Feanor and his son killed their kin, they did so th so from a corruption of something that was ultimately good. So they wanted, they loved something so much. And that love, which, and love is a good thing, was ultimately corrupted into something that was bad, but it, because it still begins at this point of, of love, um, which, is a, which is a virtue, um, it is not inherently bad. Um, and, you know, connecting this to like Sauron, um, Sauron's great sin is effectively too much love. Um, in him, it becomes a corrupting lust and basically the same thing with the Feanorians and their, their desire for the Silmarils. The men are slightly different. Um, they too have free will, and they too are loved by Eru Luvatar with a divine love, but they are not limited only by goodness, and in fact could potentially do outright evil. Um, when their virtues become too great or too corrupted, they really, really can become true evil. But because they are loved by Eru Luvatar, and that love should allegedly limit the extent of the damage they can do. 
Plus, they're mortal, so their damage-causing abilities are, like, severely hampered, unless you're a Sealder. Ha ha ha, big fucking idiot. Um, but why does this matter in an episode about dwarves, despite, like, you know, outside of Emily's lack of self-restraint? Yes, good question. Um, and the answer is, because the dwarves weren't created by God at all. Um, and there is this lovely long passage in chapter two of the Quintus Silmarillion that deals with the creation of the dwarves, but it says essentially this. Um, Ole the Valar, who was the... <laughs> the, the blacksmith of the Valar um, saw what was created in Earth and desired greatly to have some um, greater tangible impact on the Earth. Um, and he desired to have someone or some things that he could teach all that he had learned um, and act as something of a father too. In secret, he created the dwarves. Um, and he created the first seven fathers of the dwarves in a hall under the mountains in Middle-earth, that's Mount Gundabad, um, and in secret taught them everything that he knew about forging and also taught them a language, which is um, uh, Kazan. Um, God gets wind of this and gets incredibly fucked off um, and basically says to um, Aule, uh, why have you done this? Why have you gone beyond what... Um, what parameters I have set for you? How could you possibly have, have 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 gone beyond? Why do you desire to be essentially more of a creator than I am? Um, and Aule, who's feeling very very chastened and very embarrassed in front of Dad, um, takes up his hammer and gets ready to smite the dwarves and to destroy them from existence. But Eru, who is merciful, um, intervenes and says that the dwarves can live, but they can't be like awoken or kind of roam freely until after the men have awoken in the east. So the elves, or the dwarves rather, have like Eru's mercy and grace, but they don't necessarily have his love. Um, their sins and their virtues are not quite so much a part of his divine system as the sins of virtues of the elves and men. And this makes them like a particularly sticky element of the legendarium, at once like crucial to the events of it and conspicuously <laughs> external to it. Um, and there are like some interesting examples of responses to the creation of dwarves. Uh, Ivana, for example, who was the kind of demigod who protected nature and the things that live and grow, feared for the safety of the trees and living things that were near the dwarven settlements. And so she asked Eru to allow her to create a race of beings of her own to protect the living things. And thus, the Ents were born. So, you know, some good, some bad. Um, the dwarves definitely don't harm the forest as much as, say, Saruman, but through this kind of unknown and incalculable potential for evil and harm, a much greater good is done. And they are essentially a shock to the moral system of Middle-earth. I don't necessarily have a take on whether that's good or bad within the context of the Legendarium itself. Um, I do worry about what it means generally, um, and the reasons for my worry are something we're going to get into in much greater depth than next week's episode. But I just want to flag this here because I think this question of choice, morality, and internalization to the moral system of this world is really, really fascinating and one that becomes increasingly important the further along we get in these films. Wow, I really did not know any of that, especially the context surrounding the Ents, who I am a big Ent stan <laughs> in the common parlance, I would say. Um, and I'm thinking about how Gimli raises his axe in Fangorn and Aragorn has to tell him to lower it. And whether I don't think that's like meant to be a shout out or some kind of Easter egg to this long history, but it did seem appropriate or fit in the moment. But we'll talk about that when we get to that movie. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter. 
You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and other projects I've been working on. And Manuclear Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting. And you can come chat with me about anything you like, including the dwarves, and I promise I will respond. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Next, we get some spooky, scary, scaly reveals, and Boromir reveals once again... Hang on. Sorry, I gotta restart that. (laughs) You're totally good. I got that stupid song in my head and was like, all right, everything off. (laughs) (laughs) Trip bar for myself. Spooky, scary skeletons and shivers down your spine. Shrieking skulls will shock your soul and seal your doom tonight. 